And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. I was originally thinking that we'd be in Mark still, but uh, I've decided to look at the parallel passage this morning in Luke, chapter 9. And as you are turning there, I'll confess that for weeks now, uh, I've had some trepidation about coming to this passage and preaching it due to the sheer weightiness of it, the mystery of it, the difficulty of it, and most significantly, the glory that it reveals, and that I, as the preacher, am somehow supposed to convey to you. On top of that, the preacher is expected to weave in all kinds of wise and earth-shattering tidbits of practical application for the hearers to latch onto and, and take home with them. And, and yet, when you are confronted with a story like the Transfiguration, you aren't looking at a story that immediately seems to have much application for your day-to-day life. When you read about the Transfiguration, what you are confronted with more than any, anything else is simply the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as I've been considering this passage for many, many days now, I realized that in the end, there is nothing that will make more of a difference in your life practically than seeing and savoring Jesus Christ in all of His glory. I think one of the biggest reasons why we struggle in our lives, why we fall into sin, why we fall into fear, why we fall into anxiety is because of where our eyes are turned to. If my eyes are on myself, if my fears are at the forefront of my vision, if looking to other people becomes my priority, if I spend much time gazing at the headlines and little time gazing at Christ, then no wonder I've had a horrible week. No no wonder I, I haven't really been able to minister to anybody else. No wonder I've slipped into sin and worry and into a a kind of fear that is paralyzing. The song we just sang has much wisdom in it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. It's not that the things of the earth, it's not that they have no significance whatsoever, they do. But, but they're, they're meant to be put into their proper perspective when viewed through the grid of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, the task of the preacher, with God's help, is to help you to see and savor Jesus all the more, see and savor His glory, and thereby see your life changed as you look at Him. That's my impossible calling this morning. But with God, all things are possible. So, with that said, why don't you stand with me now in honor of the reading of the Word of God, which points us to the glory of Jesus, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 27. This verse, verse 27, comes right on the heels chronologically of of where we left off last week in Mark's gospel, where Jesus has been describing the nature of true discipleship. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 27. Our Lord says, But I tell you truly, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, this is a a weighty passage, a a weighty experience that is is described here in the Word of God. And Father, I in and of myself have no power to reveal something about the glory of Christ through my rhetoric. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through the Word this morning to open our eyes so that we might better see the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus. And Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would, would apply the truths about the glory of Jesus to our hearts this morning. I'm trusting You to do that, Father. I can't do that. And so we now come to you with eager expectation that you will help us this morning as we look at your precious, holy, and inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we get started, I want to draw your attention to verse 27. Jesus says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of of God. Verse 27 is, is kind of a hinge verse flowing from the previous verses and flowing into the story of the transfiguration. So if you look back to verse 20, we have Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel who will bring redemption to His people. But while Peter and the disciples envision a glorious and conquering king who would save them from their enemies, from the Romans, Jesus turns the tables on his followers and says, no, actually, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And as we saw in Mark chapter 9 a couple of weeks ago, Peter is outraged. Uh, he's, He's outraged by this, and he will not accept this teaching. But Jesus isn't done. There's more. Anyone who will be my follower, Jesus says, will live a life defined by self-denial and suffering. He says, my disciples must take up their crosses, follow me, and give up their lives for my sake. 
He says, my disciples must go down a path that many would consider shameful, but whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of him when I come in my glory at the end of the age. So Jesus has just dropped some very heavy teaching on these disciples. And you can imagine their world is rotten, their, their, their universe is just It's just spinning out of proportion now. Everything that they had believed in now is being challenged and confronted and turned around. Likely they are distraught. They are dismayed. They are depressed and discouraged. A dying Christ? A dying king? How can a kingdom be built on that? The Son of Man is supposed to live forever. This is crazy. And and now you're telling me that I've got to take up my cross Is this for real? So Jesus, in his wisdom, knows the disciples need some help, some encouragement, some assurance. And in particular, he focuses on Peter, James, and John. That was the inner circle, uh, the leaders among the disciples. He, He takes them aside for some further teaching. And in his wisdom, Jesus knows that what they need the most right now is not a lecture, What they need right now is help in taking their eyes off of the things that are causing them so much angst and consternation and to focus their attention instead on something much better. And there are three particular things, I think, that Jesus is urging his disciples, and by extension urging us, his 21st century disciples, to do. And they all have to do with turning our eyes upon Jesus and focusing on him The first thing is is that we are to look to the glory and majesty of Christ. Jesus says in verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Parallel passages mention the glory of the kingdom. Jesus wants to give these discouraged disciples a glimpse of kingdom glory. Now, this is significant because, again, thinking about the context of this all, what has the discussion between Jesus and his disciples been about leading up to this story? The kingdom. And there's been a clash between Peter's expectations of the kingdom and the king. There's been a clash between that and Jesus' revelation about the king and the kingdom and kingdom subjects, for that matter. Verse 28 says, Now, about eight days after these sayings, He took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His face was altered. Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, use the word transfigured. Transfigured, that's from the the Greek word metamorphoon. You recognize that word, don't you? Of course, we get our English word from that, metamorphosis. Peter and James and John witness a spectacular, radical transformation. Matthew writes in his gospel that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as lights. It's hard to even comprehend that kind of brightness coming forth from a person. You, you've, you've tried to maybe kind of catch a little glance of the sun in the corner of your eye before. You know how bright it is. It's overwhelming. And, and this kind of brightness now is coming from the face of Jesus Mark, in his gospel, writes that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And here in Luke 9.29, it says his clothes became 
dazzling white. Now, the disciples have witnessed many incredible things from Jesus up to this point, but this would have been the most amazing and scariest thing that the disciples would have witnessed so far. Mark chapter 9 says they were terrified. And Peter and James and John, being steeped in Old Testament language, Old Testament concepts, would have either in that moment or later on as they reflected on the event, recalled something very similar from the book of Exodus. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's real easy to find. So you go back to the beginning. You've got Genesis. And right after that, you have Exodus. Exodus 34. And in this chapter, Moses has been up on the mountain. Another mountain. Mountains often are significant in the Bible. Mount Sinai. Moses is receiving the law of God. He is communing with God. He is hearing from God. Exodus 34, verse 29. Very interesting. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses has been so affected due to his close proximity to God that the glory of God, in a sense, enveloped Moses and his face was radiant. It shone brightly. He had to put a veil over his face. It was so brilliant. What is this? This this light here. This light is, is the Shekinah glory of God. That word Shekinah is an important Hebrew word that appears in the Old Testament, it's associated with the, the blinding, brilliant, radiant glory of God. And now, here's Jesus on the mountain, and the disciples are blinded by this burst of Shekinah glory when they look at Jesus. It's like the situation with Moses, but not quite. With Moses, his face reflected the glory of God like the moon reflects the sun. But with Jesus, the glory is issuing forth from his very being. If Moses is like the moon, Jesus is the sun. Listen to what the psalmist writes about God in Psalm 104. He says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. And what are we told of Jesus? His garments became light. Jesus is is, is doing something here that only God can do, and that's the point. Book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, Peter, James, and John and their Jewish brethren certainly believed that the Christ to come would be from God that he would be mighty and powerful, but it didn't really occur to them that the Christ would actually be God. And Jesus is peeling back the curtain a bit. He's giving the disciples a glimpse of who he really is. He's, He's giving them a glimpse of divine glory. Now, if you're new to Christian theology, it's important for you to understand that the Bible teaches that there is only one God. But mysteriously, this God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the Son, was always God. 
He, he was God in eternity past. He will remain God into eternity future. But he was no less God when he became a man. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus was God. But the divine glory was not openly and obviously revealed to the world during his first advent. Jesus didn't walk around with a halo over his head. There was no obvious outward markers of his divinity. As it says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The king looked like a peasant. But the disciples, in their need for encouragement, are given, as as John Calvin describes, a, a temporary exhibition of his glory. Another teacher astutely notes that the disciples were catching a glimpse of past, present, and future glory. I think that's right. They're, they're given a glimpse of past glory and that they were seeing the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began. That they were given a glimpse of present glory and that the disciples are permitted to view what had been hidden under the cloak of humanity but what was already there. They're given a glimpse of future glory. These disciples who were so distraught and discouraged over Jesus' teachings about his suffering and his humiliation and his death, they're given a glimpse of the future exalted Christ and a glorified body full of strength and might. The disciples needed to know, and we need to know, the true identity of the Christ. This is not Buddha. This is not Muhammad. This is not Krishna. This is not Jesus, the life coach. This is not the Jehovah's Witness version of Jesus who is a mere angel. This is not the Mormon Jesus who is a lesser God in a cosmos full of countless gods. And this is not a Jesus whose final dwelling place is the tomb. The king we serve, the Christ we follow, is the Lord, the king of glory, the one true God. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The disciples needed to learn whom it was they served. And we today need a a reminder of whom it is we serve by looking to his glory and his majesty. He was more than a carpenter, so much more. So we look to the glory and the majesty of Christ. Transfiguration also reminds us to see the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. Now, if all that Jesus had done was to remove his outward veil, so to speak, and show them this manifestation of glory, that would have been enough. But it gets even more amazing. Look at, look at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Now, this is phenomenal. You do know that at this point, Elijah and Moses have been gone for hundreds of years. (laughs) And now they appear. Moses died centuries and centuries before this, and we're told that God himself buried Moses. Elijah, at the end of his ministry on earth, was taken up into heaven and a whirlwind. And now all of a sudden, here they are, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. What's going on here? And why Elijah? And why Moses? And what's the point? P. 
Peter, James, and John would have been trained in the synagogues from a very early age in what we call today the Old Testament scriptures, but what was called back then the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a, was a shorthand way of talking about God's prior revelation in the scriptures. They would read the law and the prophets. They would memorize the law and the prophets. Their hopes and dreams would be bound up in the promises of God given through the law and the prophets. And there was no person in the Old Testament that was more associated with the law than Moses. Moses was the great giver of God's law. As the Apostle John writes in the first chapter of his book, the law came through Moses. And now we also have Elijah here. Elijah represents the prophets. Indeed, he would have been considered the first of the great prophets. If there were any two figures that loom larger than life in the minds of the Jewish people, any two personalities who would have been associated with the promises of God, with God's covenant and His people, with the heritage of Israel, it would have been Moses and Elijah. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do you have? You have the representatives of the two great divisions of Scripture, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, meeting with Jesus and conversing with him. And what are they discussing? Look again at verse 30. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, for those of us who know the whole story, we know what this means means Jesus' death. It means crucifixion. But, but what's weird is that Luke describes this as something Jesus will accomplish. We don't typically think about death in those terms. If somebody dies, we don't say, well, Joe accomplished death. It's not how we talk. But taking a closer look at the sentence in the original language gives us some help. Out of Out of all the words that Luke could have used to describe what Jesus was going to do, he uses this word departure, which is translated from the Greek word exodon, literally exodus. Moses and Elijah appear in glory with Jesus, and they spoke of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Exodus. There's no way we cannot consider this word against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Luke could have used other words, but he uses this one. He is intentionally using language that recalls Israel's exodus from Egypt, where Moses comes as a great deliverer rescuing the Israelite slaves from their bondage to Pharaoh. And here now, centuries later, Moses is standing before Jesus talking with him about an exodus. But not the exodus that Moses participated in in the distant past, but an exodus that Jesus will accomplish in the near future in the city of Jerusalem. A second exodus, something that the first exodus anticipated and pointed towards. A better exodus, a greater exodus, a mightier exodus. The Christ would go to Jerusalem and he would accomplish an exodus to bring about deliverance. Now, it's interesting, as we've discussed for the past couple of sermons, Peter wants to see deliverance. He wants to see wicked kings and tyrants overthrown, and he wants to see the kingdom of God come in its full expression with God's people enjoying the kingdom and Christ's reign forever. 
But Peter did not realize that the domain of darkness was not Rome. What Peter did not realize is that ultimately the battle was not against flesh and blood, but was instead against the wicked kingdom of the demonic powers and principalities, the invisible and satanic rulers who, through the power of sin and death, held Peter and the whole world in captivity. And the way that these tyrannical forces of evil would be defeated, and the way that the people of God would be delivered, would not be through the power of the sword, but through the blood on a cross. Because on that cross, where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The sin and death that held us in bondage and captivity would be overthrown through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now all who place their faith in Jesus Christ will be delivered from the penalty of sin, will be rescued from the wrath of God, will be brought into the people of God, a people who will enjoy the kingdom of God forever. As Paul writes in Colossians, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And it also says in Colossians, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus accomplish in Jerusalem? A great exodus. He raided the domain of darkness. He sought out the captives and He led them from the clutches of Satan. And as Moses and Elijah discuss this great exodus with Jesus, we are meant to see the centrality of Jesus in the plans of God. Here you have Moses and Elijah, the personification of the law and the prophets, putting the spotlight on Christ, focusing on Christ, discussing Christ. They are face to face with the one whom the whole of Scripture... The law and the prophets pointed to and anticipated. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. One of the things that Pastor Steve and I constantly emphasize is the centrality of Christ in all of the scriptures. The entire Bible story finds its ultimate meaning and fulfillment in one way or another in Christ and in God's redemptive purposes in Christ. Too often, churches have detached parts of the Bible from Christ and read Bible stories, particularly the Old Testament, without a thought to God's purposes in Christ. And so, we reduce the Bible to little moral stories and life lessons, or worse, we set the Old and New Testament against each other instead of recognizing the beautiful harmony and relationship between the two. Regarding that relationship between the Old and New Testaments, it has been wisely said that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. If you like that, you want to write that down, I'll say it again. The the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. With Jesus at the center of it all. Scripture says in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the apex of God's revelation to man. Everything that the prophets had said and did and foretold and wrote about in the specific ways that redemptive history played itself out through the centuries, all of these were promises and previews and appetizers, so to speak, of the main event, which is Jesus Christ himself. He is central and he is supreme. Now make no mistake, all of God's word is equally God's Word. Some people have tried to elevate the words of Jesus over other parts of the Bible. That's completely wrong. book of Leviticus is just as authoritative as the red letters in the Gospel of Luke. However, because we now know the whole Bible story, we know that it's about God's redemptive purposes in Christ, you read Leviticus with that understanding. It shapes your your understanding and response to what you see in the Bible. Much theological error and confusion happens when people read the Bible as if Jesus has never come. Jesus is central and Jesus is supreme. I'm not quite sure if Peter gets that yet in our point, at our place in the story here. Look at verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, those men being... Elijah and Moses, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter, in typical form, just blurts stuff out of his mouth without thinking. This is very Peterish. Luke says, not knowing what he said. He's just thoughtlessly blubbering. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Some of you know what that's like. In Mark's account of the transfiguration, it says he was terrified. That's why he's just kind of blubbering. Sometimes when you're you're scared, dumb things come out of your mouth. Now, Peter isn't all wrong here. He's right to recognize that something special is happening here. He's right to be moved and stirred by the radiance of the glory of God. And he wants this mountaintop moment to last. Hence his request to build shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And perhaps Peter in this moment is thinking, this is it. The kingdom has come. Moses and Elijah are here. The glory of God is here. Let's build these three tents or three tabernacles. And let's keep this party going. It doesn't have to end. Notice that Peter says, he's saying this as Moses and Elijah are leaving. He he sees them beginning to depart, and Peter's like, wait a minute! He he wants them to stay. He wants wants to make this glory last. But there are two problems with that. One, this seems to put Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Each prophet would be, in Peter's suggestion, would be given his own special tabernacle, as if he deserved the same kind of honor and recognition as Jesus. It makes Jesus seem as as simply one of the guys, one of the great prophets. These are three great men, so let's honor these men with their own tabernacles. And yet, if Jesus is truly supreme, is that the appropriate response? When Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah, he was not consulting with them. He was not asking them for help. He was not asking them for advice. These weren't fellow colleagues or peers. 
And Moses and Elijah aren't there to show that Jesus is simply one of the prophets, but instead to testify and confirm uh, the, the reality that he is the one and only Christ, the one whom the law and the prophets spoke of and longed for. But there's a bigger problem with Peter's suggestion. Peter's plan interfered with God's plan for salvation again. Yes, it surely was a good thing for Peter and James and John to bask in the glory of the sun for a moment. But the time for everlasting glory had not yet come. Jesus himself had just said a week before to Peter that the Son of Man must be killed. And Peter then said no. And now we discover through the conversation with Moses and Elijah that the Christ has an exodus to accomplish at Jerusalem. And again, Peter says no. How many times can one man get in the way of saving the universe from destruction? I like how one writer described it when he said, not willing to wait, Peter wanted the glory right away. He wanted to make it last, and so he proposes setting up some little tents, presumably thinking of the tabernacle that Moses made in the wilderness as the place for God's glory. And once the tents were made, people could come and see Jesus and Moses and Elijah and all of their glory. And soon, the area would become a religious shrine, perhaps with little souvenir stands popping up all over the mountainside. And yet, there can be no kingdom without a cross. I know I've been saying that the past couple of weeks, but that's what the text keeps telling us every week. There can be no kingdom without a cross. There can be no eternal glory for you and I and Peter to enjoy without a cross. Without a, without a cross, there's just eternal hell. And Jesus will not be dissuaded from his mission, from his exodus. Look at verse 34. As he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Now, this is actually kind of funny. It says, as he was saying these things, Peter won't shut up. That's classic Peter. He's going on and on and on about his plans and what he wants to do on this mountain and how wonderful it's going to be. And God the Father comes in a cloud and actually has to interrupt Peter. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And so now the Father speaks. Be quiet, Peter. Shut up, Peter. It's my turn to speak. And what does the Father say? Verse 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that leads to my final point that we are to listen to and obey the words of Christ. Listen to him, Peter. You haven't been listening, Peter. You, all you do is talk. All you do is come up with your plans. All you do is rest all of your hopes on your ideas and your agendas. You're so consumed with your own ideas and purposes, Peter. You continue to have the things of man in your mind and not the things of God. Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of Moses. Get your eyes off of Elijah. Get your eyes off of what you think is best and what you think should happen. Turn your eyes away from other things and look at him and listen to him. This is my son, Peter. This is my chosen one. I did not choose you to save the world. I did not choose Moses and Elijah to do that. Listen to him. Now, that, that should sound familiar 
Not only do these words from the Father echo the words that were spoken at Jesus' baptism, listen to him. But they also should bring to our attention the words from Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is close to death. He's delivering his final sermon, his final word of encouragement to Israel. And what does he say? He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The work and the ministry of Moses pointed to and anticipated the work and ministry of a greater Moses. Someone like Moses, someone who would be the mediator between God and man, like Moses was, someone who would deliver his people from bondage, someone like Moses, but someone superior to Moses, because this one would be God's own son. And God says, listen to him. And the listening, by the way, means not just hearing, but heeding, obeying, submitting to, something that Peter has been struggling with big time. But this is a lesson that Peter begins to get and learn and hold on to later on. In his sermon in Acts chapter 3, Peter says this. This is Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 22. This is Peter preaching. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, if you came here this morning as an unbeliever, that word is for you. You you ignore the words of Christ at your own peril. Peter says, if you don't listen, you'll be destroyed because of your sins. Now, if that's true, the good news is that the opposite is true. If you listen to him, you will not be destroyed. You will find life. And at the cross, Jesus accomplished a great exodus. And to this very day, he is still rescuing captives from the kingdom of darkness. If you would but place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his payment for your sins, demonstrating your trust by listening to him, turning from your sins, following after him, you will be spared. You will will find yourself to be the latest ex-slave delivered from satanic captivity. And if you're already a believer, the lesson of the transfiguration for you is to look to the glory and majesty of Christ, to see his centrality and supremacy in all things, and to listen to and obey him. Now, you might say, that sounds good, but how do I do that? Those disciples, they were on the mountain. I wasn't on the mountain. How how am I to see Jesus' glory or listen to him? If I had what they had, then I could do that. Do you know that the Apostle Peter, yes, the same Peter who was on the mountain, wrote a letter that answers that question? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. And Peter here is writing this many years after the transfiguration experience. But he's reflecting back on that experience and what it means for us. And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Look what he says next, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Notice that Peter is not telling you to seek your own transfiguration experience. He's not saying, hey, I had this awesome time on the mountain and you didn't. Too bad for you. He's not telling you that you need to have all of these visual experiences and and sensory manifestations. Ultimately, what you need, he says, is the prophetic word, the Bible, to which you will do well to pay attention And look what he goes on to say in verse 19. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter compares looking at the Word of God with lights, with the dawning of the morning star, reminiscent of the transfiguration experience. Uh, When you pay attention to what the Bible says about Jesus, you see His glory for yourself. Christians are expected today to look to Jesus and His glory not on a mountain, but in His Word. Hebrews chapter 12 urges us to look to Jesus. That was written after the ascension. But still, you are to look to Jesus. And you see him in his word. And if we think, by the way, if we think, well, oh, great. After all this, Deemer is just telling me to read the Bible. That's anticlimactic. Friends, if we think that, that says more about us than it does about the Bible. And God help us if we have that attitude. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may behold Boring things out of your law? Plain, mundane things out of your law? No. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Do you ever pray that before you come to the Bible? If not, maybe that's why you think this book is boring when you open it up. Friends, there is a wonder and a glory in the scriptures that confronts us when he opens our eyes to see. And as your eyes are open to the wonder and the glory of Christ as you discover Him in the Scriptures, you begin to then see the centrality and the supremacy of Christ in the Scriptures. And that in turn causes you to magnify and honor Him. It reminds you that you are not the main character of the story, but He is. And there is nothing that will affect for the good how you live how you deal with problems, how you think about a nation that is divided and torn apart with shootings and violence and hatred like ours is. There's nothing that will affect your job or your marriage or your parenting like recognizing the centrality and the supremacy of Christ, not just in the Bible, but in your story. And as you continue to see Christ and His glory in the Bible, when you pay attention to the Word of God and listen to Him, listen to it, it awakens faith In your hearts, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Do you lack faith? Are you struggling in your faith? Are you battling unbelief? Well, are you hearing him? Are are you, you listening to him in his word? 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The experience of the transfiguration, or any experience, is temporary and fades. But the Word of God endures forever. Peter knew that firsthand, which is why he says, Yes, I had this experience on the mountain, but you pay attention to the Scriptures. Pay attention to the Word. In that you will find all the glory that you need. And what happens? What happens as we behold the glory of Christ more and more? Paul tells us what happens in 2 Corinthians. He says, And and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, you become what you behold. The more you look to Christ, the more you become like Him. And folks, I do not know of a a single mature, strong, spiritually healthy Christian who's victorious over sin, who's navigating the troubles of this world rightly, who's full of peace and joy, who is also not regularly beholding the glory of Christ in His Word. You want change? Look to the glory of Christ. You want peace? Revel in the supremacy of Christ. You want life? Listen to the Christ. The transfiguration lasted but a few moments. But every day there is a glory waiting for you right here in His Word that will change your world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive me for not doing this word justice. Father, thank you that You are sufficient when your people are insufficient. And so, Father, I pray that that the words that have been preached this morning, those things that are valuable and helpful and Christ-honoring and that are a blessing, that those things would remain with us. And, and, And anything that I said that was not helpful or distracting, distracting from the glory of Christ, Father, just just help us to forget those things and turn away from those things. Father, help us to to remember that, that we can look to Christ in Your holy and inspired Word. We have this great repository of wisdom and glory, and forgive us for the dust that we allow to collect on it. Help us to be more diligent in seeking You and Your face in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.